Hi, everybody. Just a quick reminder to vote if you haven't already. They're saying that if you're filling out a ballot at home to find a drop-off location, and there are many of those all around town, so drop it off there. In other words, please don't mail in your ballot at this point. Of course, you can always vote at your local polling place if you're able. Okay, on with the show. My whole life changed because of California, recovery, San Francisco, which was such a different place back then. A city of poets, a city of writers and artists. It was an incredible place. It was just an amazing place. That was poet and author Alan Kaufman. Welcome to Storied San Francisco. I'm your host, Jeff Hunt. In this podcast, Alan picks up where he left off in part one. Through a friend, he learned about Israel, took a trip there, and ended up staying for several years. But when he returned home to New York City, he fell into drinking and was homeless for a bit. After sobering up, Alan decided he needed a change of scenery, so he came to San Francisco. The rest of the episode is filled with wonderful stories of poetry readings, a student strike, getting published, and a poetry strike on the steps of City Hall. Alan ends the episode comparing the city he moved to back in 1990 to the San Francisco of today. Here's Alan. Like my mother, I was looking for freedom. Yeah. She looked for freedom and found it sort of... Aversion. Aversion. (laughs) But I was looking for something more. So let's hear about what you did. Well, anyway, I was playing football. I went to Eastern Michigan University for one semester to play football, but I, you know, Kerouac and all that just completely (laughs) ruined all that stuff. I was like, you know, I I went out for football, and I was like, you know, I don't care about this. Yeah. I transferred back to New York. I went to City College of New York, which at that time was called the Harvard of the Proletariat. It was an incredible place. Uh, I studied with Elie Wiesel. Mm. Anthony Burgess, mm-hmm. you know, wrote Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. He was teaching there. I mean, you know, just yeah. incredible people. Not bad. And I began to really delve hard into writing. Okay. And um, I made the decision, by the way, to be a writer when I was 10. Hmm. I said, I'm going to be, I didn't even know what it was, but I just wanted to be a writer. Anyway, so uh, by the time I got to college, I was, you know, writing. I was failing all my courses except literature and writing. And, uh, you know, I, um, I won an award, a writing award in college, and um, I somehow they grad, they just got me out of there. They just wanted to get rid of me. I, I graduated, you know. And, uh, and then also I met a friend named Alan Tannenbaum, who's now, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's a scientist, and his wife's a scientist. They're um, in New York now. Um, and uh, so Alan was the guy who told me about Israel. You know, I, my mother didn't, nobody talked about Israel. And, you know, in 1970s, like, you know, what has Israel got to do with us? Right. But he told me about Israel. And, you know, I started making these, you know, because I couldn't find any, like when I was in high school, I had a friend named Fred Johnson who was the center on the football team, and he told me about the Black Panthers. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, 
wow, oh wow. So like oppressed and, you know, uh, self-defense. Like I put, but I didn't put that together with Jewish, the Holocaust, nothing like that. Okay. The helplessness that they had. Um, but uh, Alan Tannenbaum started talking about um, Israel. Mm -hmm. And I was enthralled. I was absolutely like, what is that? I want to know more about that. And I began to realize, I took Jewish studies courses when I was at City College and learned more about Middle East studies and Israel and all the stuff. And then in 1977, um, they passed a, a resolution in the UN equating Zionism with racism. It was a big scandal. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to Israel. I want to see what, I didn't know what Israel was. I thought it was like tents and camels. And right, right. I had no idea. I remember asking Alan, hey, do they have like bookstores there, libraries? <laughs> right. He's like, you'll see, it's a full culture. Yeah. Anyway, I went to Israel and I uh, stayed seven, I became a citizen. I went into the army, mm -hmm. became a citizen. I stayed for seven years. I have an Israeli daughter. Okay. In, in Israel. You know, I really, I did it. You know, I went, I wanted to explore what it means not to be helpless hmm. as a Jew. Mm -hmm. You know, not to be facing the Holocaust. You know, not to be facing all that. Right. I wanted the sense of empowerment. And it gave me that. It gave me that. Absolutely. Awesome. I know politically there's all this drama around Israel, but to me, as a child of a Holocaust survivor, it's such a natural and wonderful progression Right. from six million dead to having your own country. Right. Because they really, they learned, we learned, we just learned the lesson that without your own country, without your own army, mm -hmm. you're doomed, mm -hmm. if you're Jewish. Right. And I can't, I can't explain that. <laughs> you know, you, you have to have that connection maybe to the Holocaust to, to really get that, how doomed you are. Did that experience also have a little bit of that sort of exploration and the inspiration to explore that you got from Jack Kerouac? Or was that a complete? No, no, that's absolutely possible. Yeah. That's absolutely possible. I, <laughs> um, yeah, that's possible. It's possible to say that your op my openness to something. I mean, come on. I was from the Bronx, New York. What does the Middle East and Israel have to do with me? Right. You know, I was throwing myself out into like an astronaut into outer space. Right. That's what it was for me. Right. Going to planet Venus. Of course, it turned out to be actually quite a country, quite an amazing place. Yeah, seven years and and a child. It's that's and. A stint in the army. It was an crazy. Well, I even went back in two thousand and three mm -hmm. um, to serve again. Wow. So, uh, anyway, that's a, and I went there as a reporter for uh, L.A. Times, San Francisco Chronicle, to report on the the conflict, and mm -hmm. you know, I did had a lot of involvement. Okay. But that was my that was like my road. That wasn't like part of my literary work. Um, it was just like my personal journey. Got it. And that was very much connected to my, my mother. Absolutely connected to my mother. How did San Francisco enter your... So your when I was... Uh, when we were... When I was like 12, we were in San Francisco. We ended up as out-of-state indigents living in a flop house in the Mission. Was that one of your Greyhound? 
trip? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, my mother and my brother and I went to San Francisco, and then my father came because he was out of work. He was also probably running from something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the mission, you said. Yeah, we were living in the mission. Do which, you know where exactly? I know you were young. In mission, but... you know, so you know, back then, the mission was not what you see now. Sure. Back then, the mission was flop houses, dumpy little hotels. Right. Um, a real mix of, you know, poor people. Mm -hmm. Jack Kerouac mm -hmm. was in the mission for a while. It was just flop houses, winos. It was like the Bowery. Right. It wasn't this big Latino community. Back then, it was uh, just a dump. We were living in a, in, a, in a flop house run by a guy named Butterball. Okay. I remember my mother pulled off the, sh the covers and there was like cockroaches. Oh, it was, man. we had no money, no food. They would give you food tickets. I mean, they ran out in like a day. Yeah. Anyway, so we were living there. And anyway, we finally gave up and we went to the welfare board and said, you know, we, and they said, well, we can give you Greyhound bus tickets back to New York. Mm. So we took them. Okay. We went back to New York. All right. We was crashing at someone's house. It's all a story. So that was your first. Trip yeah, but to that San was. Francisco. I remember San Francisco. Um, <laughs> I think when I, you know, what happened was I was uh, hanging out in the East Village. I'll jump ahead. I was hanging out in the East Village. Um, I began to drink myself to death. Mm -hmm. I was living in t at some point. I was homeless, living in Tompkins Square Park. Sure. I was going to the New Yorican Post Cafe. I was one of the first people to the New Yorican Post Cafe. Oh well. I'm in their book allowed. Voices from the New York and Post Cafe. Awesome. I was really in the mix there, but I was homeless. I, uh, yeah, I was hitting bottom big time. I think a lot of stuff came crashing in on me from my background, my childhood. I was in, you know, war, all that stuff. So this is after Israel? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I went, I came back, I went to Columbia University. It was in graduate school. Okay. Published this book. Um, you know, I was in the mix. I was like, uh, I was written up in the newspapers, you know, I was getting all this stuff. Was this like 80s? 84. I came Got back it. in 84 and 86 and 87. I was at Columbia. And, uh, but in 89, and I had my, I got married, I had my daughter, got divorced. In 89, I started nosediving. Okay. I was running around in a London fog raincoat. I'm making a lot of money and had that book published and, you know, all this stuff and the drinking. I was just drinking myself to death. Mm. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. Couldn't take being me. Couldn't take living. Couldn't take my own story. Right. The whole thing just, just imploded. And I ended up in the streets, Tompkins Square Park. I met in Tompkins Square Park two people. One was a poet who was kind of well-known, Jim Brody. He was in the New York School of Poets. Okay. He knew John O'Hara and all those guys. I mean, uh, Frank O'Hara. I know the name. He knew all those guys. Um, okay. He was Jim Brody. He was living in the park. And one night we sat under this broken umbrella in the rain with rats running under our feet. And uh, he said to me, you know, you don't have to be here. You don't have to go down like this. There's a way out. Like what? Yeah. He started talking about recovery. Okay. And uh, 
Anyway, that made an impression on me. And then I had another friend who's now a very famous actor. I can't say his name. That's all right. He was in recovery. Mm -hmm. African-American friend. Um, and, uh, and I knew that he was also going to these meetings and all this stuff. Anyway, a friend of mine from Columbia, I called him up to say, hey, man, you know, I'm broke. You know, I wanted to hustle him for some money. And he put his wife on the phone, and she was in recovery. And she said, why don't you come to Brooklyn? We'll pay for the cab. We'll take you to him. Anyway, to make a long story short, she took me to a meeting. Okay. You're first. And from then on, I just, that was it. I, I stayed with them for a week. And uh, also during that drinking time, I met Margaret. Oh, yeah. Um, I met Margaret. She went, I met her at the New York and Poets Cafe. That's Margaret Casey Margaret that he's Casey. talking about, former uh, and guest we kinda on Yeah. Had a we we had a thing yeah and um, yeah and then after a week of sobriety um, I said I I gotta go I can't impose on you nice people anymore I asked Danny to lend me a hundred bucks which he did and I bought a one way ticket to San Francisco Greyhound can you explain why at that time you chose what. I think... Um, what was it? Well, first of all, I knew in the New York and Poets Cafe a lot of poets who were from San Francisco who had come, and they had told me about a scene out there. But, of course, that was just simply, you know, the catalyst. The real underlying reason, I think, was um, that we left San Francisco in such a state of disgrace when I was 12. Mm. It was a shattering experience mm -hmm. to be kicked out of California. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to <laughs> work right. hard to get kicked out yes, of California. Yes, we're very forgiving you know? here. <laughs> <laughs> we were kicked out of California. So you had to kind of make right, make that right. I had to make that right. God. I'm pretty sure that was what it was. Yeah. And but then also there was a, a literary connection. Like you said, and there was there a literary and Kerouac. And, and yeah. The whole beat thing. and yeah. There was a literary connection. Okay, so, um, so you came out here. Greyhound. Came out on a Greyhound. Uh, I... Margaret and I moved in together. Okay. That's a whole story. That's you her should time. ask her about that story. I, that might be in her podcast, actually. And uh, I got into recovery, you know, and I stayed. I've been now clean and sober for 30 years. 30 years. Still. Was still. it 1990 that you moved here then? or? Yeah. Okay. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, That's thank you. fucking awesome. So, and my whole life changed. Yeah. My whole life changed because of California, recovery, San Francisco, which was such a different place back then. Sure. A city of poets, a city of writers and artists. It was an incredible place. Mm -hmm. It was just an amazing place. You know, Margaret and I didn't have a dime to our names. She was living with somebody and she moved out on him and moved in with me. What happened was uh, we, we went looking, for, we went to this uh, rental apartment rental place and they had this book you could look in and we found, saw this address of her boarding house in the Lower Haight. Mm -hmm. We went and knocked on the door and said, hi, you know, uh, we're looking for a room. Guy closed the door in our face. Mm. We didn't look savory. <laughs> we looked unsavory. Right. Knocked on the next door, which was right next door, and said, hey, you know, do you have, it was another boarding house on Page Street. And we said, do you have a, um, a room here? And the guy said, yeah, we got a room. And we said, Mark, his name was, I said, I said look, man, we got no money. He said, okay. You know, we'll give you the room, and when you got the money, let me pay up. That's how it was. Wow. It was incredible. And it was a fun 
experience. Yeah. It was fun. Okay. It was great. A lot of poets. We started going to readings. Paradise Lounge, Cafe Babar. There was a group of poets called the Barbarians that I was part of. And the Barbarians, you know, David Lerner, Bruce Isaacson, Julia Vinograd, uh, Vampire Mike Cassell, uh, Danny Higgs. Um, just a different Mel I Thompson. Da I know Dan Higgs from oh, Dan his, Higgs. from his band. I don't know him personally, but from oh, his band. Oh, Danny and I like this. Lungfish. Lungfish. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I but Danny was a great poet. Absolutely. In fact, I, 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 I saw him do poetry. A I edited times. his first book of poetry. There you go. And uh, every Thursday night, it was a sheet metal lined room, um, and uh, there was a clothesline strung across the front. There was like little grandstand seating. And Julia Vinograd would get up and bang the sheet metal and shout, starting. And then it was a list. And you got up and read. And you could read up to five minutes or three poems. Okay. But you got, if they didn't like your work, you got hissed, booed, jeering, laughing, mm -hmm. mocking you. Mm -hmm. People would just mock you. Just mm -hmm. get the hell out of here. That sucked. You suck. I mean, like that. Yeah. So to get up there took a lot. Anyway, one time I was reading there, and um, there was somebody taking photographs, and uh, um, it was a guy from the San Francisco, Carrie Tennis, from the San Francisco Weekly, and he wrote this cover story with me, a big picture of me, and as the kind of focus of the thing, and nice. that was kind of like my first step off, you know, like really stepping into that world. Anyway, that went on, the, the, you know, the whole thing, and um, I got sent to Germany. They, they, they brought me to Germany to do poetry, and uh, kind of took off and in that way. Um, and w uh, when and how did you meet Ron Turner, or get oh, involved with Last Gas? Ron Turner. Well, um, I first met Ron Turner back in, I don't know, must have been like 2000 and... 12 or 11 okay. but I had heard about Last Gasp and yeah. Ron Turner and I just never had any reason to intersect with what he was doing right a different literary there was no different, it was publishing, different, different publishing world yeah I mean I, you know I started getting published by you know uh, you know um, uh, Little Brown and you know and uh, Farrar Strauss and you know writing novels and memoirs and all the stuff there was no you know I was just going in a different trajectory altogether um, but we did meet we did meet a couple of times I, I didn't know what to make of him you know um, he was always surrounded this old guy surrounded by these beautiful young girls <laughs> nothing's really changed there you know what I mean it's like <laughs> it's like what's that's what's, why I feel bad when I'm around him I'm like I'm bringing your game down what's this guy you know <laughs> what's his story you know it's like he looks like 70 and he's got these beautiful ladies around him yeah they adore him yeah adore him what I think the first thing that was R. Crumb. Yeah. Because I was in touch with R. Crumb. We were con corresponding, mm -hmm. and that's when I began to see another aspect of Ron mm -hmm. um, and about Last Gasp. About mm -hmm. And the other thing was I was doing these outlaw Bibles, poetry, essays, and literature, the Yellow Bible American Literature was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. Wow. I mean, that was the first time anything from alternative culture ever got reviewed on the cover. Wow. In a, in a three-page 
review. Amazing. Um, you know, I kind of broke through, and I was really exploring hard this dimension of outlaw writers. Okay. Um, it was just a matter of time before, you know, outlaw artists. Right. And, uh, you know, Arkram and others. And also, when I was living in San Francisco, I met a group of young artists. Um, I was teaching at the Academy of Art. Oh. A couple of them went there. Mm -hmm. um, they were living, a lot of them, in the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, <laughs> Christopher Birch, uh, D. Young Five, um, uh, Brett Amory. They had this whole subculture in the Tenderloin of like, you know, galleries in basements of apartment buildings that they were managing. You know, uh, one guy had a print. I mean, it was like a factory. I mean, mm. <laughs> you know, they were printing T-shirts and lithographic stuff, all illegal. Right. Like none of it was approved by any legal. So, <laughs> Right. The whole place, um, it was like another world underneath the Tenderloin mm -hmm. that I kind of fell into. And, um, and I began to write articles about some of their art. And a lot of these guys were way better than the mainstream artists that I knew. Oh, yeah. I was like, wow, this guy is fantastic. Brett Amory, uh, fantastic uh, painter. Writing articles for, for whom or for what, for what publication? Um, so let me see. I, I wrote, uh, I feel like they were like web magazine, online magazine, and also a high fructose. Okay. Like I wrote on Christopher Birch for high fructose. You know high fructose? I've heard of it. I never. High fructose. Never, yeah. It's it's a glossy yeah. magazine. And, uh, and then there were like these websites, magazines, web magazines, art magazines. So, you know, I, I fell in with these young artists and uh, they were, they were terrific. They were absolutely terrific. And what years uh, are we talking now? This would have been 2006, 2007, okay. 2008. Mid first decade. Yeah, I was teaching at the that. Academy of Art in 2004. Okay. And in 2004, I led a strike. You can look that up. I led a strike against the Academy of Art. Okay. You can look it up in the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle. A faculty strike, or it was no, it was students. Oh, okay. I tr I was on the faculty, and what happened was I tr they threw out, a st you know you can do what you want with this. But they they threw out a student for no. I mean they threw him. It wasn't just threw him out. He was disgraced. I mean they got rid of him. They sent him back to Oregon, mm. like this 18 year old kid crying in a, in a limo to the airport, gone. Then one of my students. And they asked me what I thought about it, and I said, that's terrible. They called me and said, what do you think of that? I said, that's absolutely terrible, because they knew I wrote for the Chronicle, and I wrote for the Los Angeles Times. And, and I actually said to them, I'm going to write something about it. <laughs> and I got my friend James Sullivan, who was the pop culture critic. He wrote this big article you know, about me talking about them. Then uh, I let us. I tried to organize teachers to strike because they th were throwing other students out for no reason. I mean, just crazy. Um, and I, so I let a strike and I tried to get the teachers to know, but they were terrified. Mm. They were absolutely terrified. Mm -hmm. They were like, no, we'll lose our job. And I said, so lose your job. So what? Yeah. Get another job. 
they were like, uh, no, 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 no. But the students, they like, we've had it. Yeah. And so there was a huge strike. I let a huge strike. You can see, you can read about it in the Chronicle. Um, it was incredible. They shut down all of New Montgomery Street. Yes. They shut down the Powell Street branch. It was all shut down. Nice. And the students came out and struck. I went, I was teaching, you know, several classes and I said to my students, look, I don't want any of you to get in trouble. If you don't want to walk out with me, don't walk out. They all walked out. Nice. And uh, they even would come up to me years after and say, that was the best experience we ever had in college. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's like. I love it. Anyway. Um, I do want to get your thoughts. Um, I think, you know, first of all, you don't live in San Francisco currently. Um, I, and you don't have to talk about why if you don't want to, obviously. But I kind of want to get your opinion and your impression of what the city has become and, and what it is now. Okay. Look, I mean, when I got to San Francisco, it was an open place for artists, writers. It was a fantastic, rich, vibrant city. Politically vibrant Culturally, I mean, it was a world capital. I mean, people came from, when I got to San Francisco, people came, poets and writers and artists came from around the world just to be in San Francisco. Plus it had the whole beat heritage, you know, that was fantastic. And um, all of that, all of that is completely gone. Um, so, you know, it's, I've seen it, a city, a great city die. I consider it a dead town. It's gone. Is that why you left? In or part. Is it part in of part. It? In part. Um, it just there was no reason to hang on there anymore. You know, <laughs> you know, even New York, you know, which my hometown, is you know changed irreparably, but it's not to that degree. San Francisco became a bedroom community of Silicon Valley. Mm. It became, you know, a suburb of Mountain View. And uh, that, you know, the city, that San Francisco is a great city. It's a, t a little city with a world-class reputation. I mean, I've done my, you know, I have books tra translated into other languages, German, Dutch, published in England. If you go to other countries and see the reverence for San Francisco that was felt there, mm -hmm. it's so touching. I mean, the writers, you're from San Francisco. Oh, you know, now it's gone. It's gone. Nobody reveres San Francisco anymore. Right. Writers don't care about San Francisco anymore. To be a writer was to be, you know, some kind of cultural aristocrat. I mean, you could be a poor poet in the Tenderloin publishing in little magazines and, were, and you were like a god. Now it's it's all gone, all completely gone. Do you have any hope of any sort of revival? Or <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you asked me that because I was just talking about that not too long ago with a friend saying, you know what, that this pandemic, which is horrible, may save San Francisco because you know finally all the rich richies can move out, go by, go go home, or go where you're going. And maybe the and the rents are plummeting. You know, um, you know maybe they'll plummet to a point where people who are real artists 
can move back and revive the city. Valencia Street, which is now, you know, was it just became a disgrace. I mean, Rolls Royces and Jaguars rolling up Valencia Street. When I got to San Francisco, Valencia Street was called the Street of the Poets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was like one club, if I can remember, you know, my memory is not, is not good anymore, but um, there was a club where the trans, the transsexual community put on these unbelievable <laughs> shows where poets and writers and artists would come and build sets. People who, were, who weren't even in the trans community will come and build sets. And that was like the wildest, funnest show and great poetry and just amazing theater, things like that. Um, I think it was called, what was it called? Club, I can't remember, I can't remember. But it was wild. Yeah. And you felt like anything was possible. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't even this harsh division between, say, the transsexual community and the heterosexual community. There wasn't. Right, right. There was no, there was, it was all like all mushed together, one big kind of crazy carnival of poetry and art. Um, the south of, of Market, I mean, all these abandoned warehouses were turned into like flying circuses and just wild, stuff, amazing poetry readings. It was the whole city. Yeah. Let me tell you something. I led a strike, and I was big then on leading strikes. <laughs> okay. I led a poet, the poet strike of San Francisco. Okay. I don't know if you're aware there was a poet strike in I San was Francisco. Not, no. When was this? 1993 or four. Okay. Something like that. Okay. What happened was um, there was a there was a, a, a cafe called the Blue Parrot. A woman named Kathy Georges, who's now in New York, she runs a reading in New York. The police, oh, what happened was somebody at City Hall got this crazy idea that um, they could make money from the explosion of poetry. There were poetry readings happening. You know, we were written up in the Chronicle. It was a picture of me and Andy Clausen in the Chronicle reading. I mean, it gave the impression that there were thousands of people. (laughs) (laughs) There were hundreds. But not thousands. But anyway, somebody said, well, I was like, oh, maybe we can make money from this poetry thing. They sent cops to the Blue, Par- Blue Monkey Cafe to shut down the reading. They came and literally pulled the plug and they said, this reading is an illegal reading. Shut down. You have to go to City Hall and pay a $200 poetry permit. Okay. They're just so making somebody, shit up now. Somebody called me up and said, Alan, have you heard about this? What should we do? I said, we have to have a strike. Let's have a strike. Where should we have to strike? I said, on the steps of City Hall. We went 10 poets, me, Jack Hirschman. You know Jack Hirschman? Yeah, sure. Me, Jack Hirschman, a bunch of poets. 10 of us went to the steps. And you can see that also in the newspapers. It's in all the newspapers. So we went and and we had a strike. And there were police there with riot gear. (laughs) (laughs) And there was us. You know? I, I love that image of oh, riot gear versus riot poets. Gear versus poets. <laughs> we didn't even have a microphone. What happened was Frank Jordan was the mayor. Mayor, right, right. Jordan was embarrassed to death because also, besides po- poets and cops, there were reporters. Because right. I made sure to call up Associated Press, Chronicle, you name it. There was a whole <laughs> bevy of, of reporters there. I don't know if that's the right term, bevy of reporters. Sure, but anyway, sure. they were there. 
and taking pictures and all this. And um, what happened was uh, Frank Jordan called me and Hirschman upstairs to meet. In the mayor's office. In the mayor's office. Got it. And he said, what can we do to stop this? <laughs> I said, you have to remove that law from the books. And until you do, we are going to strike in every single cafe, every single bar, every single venue in San Francisco until it's over. It actually was a law? I thought it maybe was they were law. making shit up. No, okay. they fished it out. They found it on the books. From a the, probably poetry from the, permit? Probably from the Lenny Bruce days. Oh. You know? Anyway, so what happened was, um, he was like, <laughs> and then what happened was Angela Aliota was running against him for mayor. So she aligned herself with me. She's like, we're going with Alan. And then the, new, the Chronicle ran stories about me and Angela Aliota and how she's supporting the poets. And she said, my father, you know, Joe Aliota, who was the former, former mayor, mayor. Mm -hmm. he wants to meet you. And I met with him and he said, we want to have a big reading on the steps of City Hall. Yes. We'll bring out all the media yes. and television and, um, and, and we want to crush this. Of course, he was just boosting his daughters. Right, right, right. Anyway, we had a reading on the steps of City Hall again. And, uh, and Joe Aliotto <laughs> read a poem with his. Yes. And uh, Angela introduced me in the reading and this whole thing. It was huge. It was like a huge audience outside of City Hall, and we had microphones and all this, and the media were all there. It was on CNN. Oh, my God. It was in Time Magazine. It is, I mean, it's, You can still look it up. It's probably still on Time Magazine. It's newsworthy. I'll, I'll say that. It's, oh, it was Time Magazine. Yeah. I mean, they, they called me up and interviewed me. And Anyway, to make a long story short, we, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and me at City Hall, sitting the three of us together, and uh, they shot down the law. Nice. We were in the audience, you know, waiting to see this happen, and they did it, of course. I mean, the whole city rose up to defend the poets. And that's what San Francisco used That's San to. Francisco. That, that's the San Francisco that I knew and loved. That San Francisco is, right now, belly up, gone. That was Alan Kaufman. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, we'll get to know teacher and native San Franciscan Ida McRae. This is a very special podcast for us, so please join us for episode 40 next Tuesday. And don't forget to vote. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me. Michelle and I have produced more than 130 episodes over the last three years, and you can find them all at our website, storiedsf.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can like, comment, and share the stuff we put out. Find the podcast just about everywhere you can listen, including, most recently, BFF.fm's new podcast network. Please subscribe to stay up to date on all the content we publish. We love feedback. So if you have any, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and stay healthy. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. 
Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.fm, best frequencies forever.